If you want to make your own podcast but feel intimidated by the tech barriers, then you might need Alitu. Alitu is a web app that lets you create and publish great sounding podcast episodes. It takes care of the complicated stuff, leaving you free to concentrate on what you do best, talking about your passion. Alitu, the podcast maker app, find it at alitu.com. That's A-L-I-T-U dot com. What could your school do with $25,000? Hawaii Public School teachers apply for the Education Innovation Grant from Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation to make your big idea a reality. The Education Innovation Grant fosters unique, innovative learning experiences benefiting teachers, students, and the greater community. The deadline to apply is May 30th. One Oahu winner and one neighbor island winner will be announced in October. To apply, go to FarmersHawaii.com slash Education Innovation. Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the Senate. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. This is another in our series we call On the Road with What School Could Be. We are recording at the Entrepreneur's Sandbox, an innovation space in Honolulu managed by Box Jelly Coworking. Today I will be talking with Wasfia Nazreen, the only woman to hold the simultaneous titles of National Geographic Explorer and Adventurer. Although she is known for being the first Bangladeshi in the world to climb the seven summits, which are the highest mountains of every continent, her passion has always been driven by causes close to her heart. She has won numerous national and global awards for her activism and commitment to empowering women through the field of adventure. She was named by Outside Magazine as one of 40 women in the last 40 years who have advanced and challenged the outdoor world through their leadership, innovation, and athletic feats and by Men's Journal as one of the 25 most adventurous women of the past 25 years. She is the founder of the Osel Foundation, which empowers marginalized girls from Bangladesh through the outdoors. Currently, she is hard at work in California, producing a new TV series about her life as a climber, and much more. Here now is part two of my conversation with Wasfia Nazreen. So, Wasfia, we're on question number six. Um, you were named by Outside Magazine as one of 40 women in the last 40 years who have advanced and challenged the outdoor world through their leadership, innovation, and athletic feats. And by Men's Journal as one of the 25 most adventurous women of the past 25 years. So my question is, challenge the outdoor world to do what? 
Um, wh what are your challenges to the outdoor world? What does it mean to be most adventurous? Um, what does it mean to be innovative in the outside world, in the outdoor world? What are you challenging the outdoor world to do, you and the others? I don't personally feel like I've challenged, like I came from a place of challenge, uh, but just being a person of color, a woman from Bangladesh, um, you have to know the out outdoors world is very white male oriented and our voice. And one of the reasons why I'm working on this TV show right now is to tell the other voices that mm. exist. And even, and I was reading this other research where out of maybe there was a seven person women all, you know, from all over the world who are guides in the Himalayas. Seven mm. percent. That right. just puts you, you yeah. know. Puts it in perspective. Yeah. And yeah. so I think climbing, because I could have very well done it from Western world and it wasn't going to be the way I did it from Bangladesh, just coming from Bangladesh, because that's all the social mountains that I had to climb even before leaving for the seven summits, before reaching mm. um, the base camp, where things that you don't normally think of when you're climbing a mountain from a Western perspective, if that makes sense. And I think, um, but internationally, I think if you can literally carry the weight mm -hmm. <laughs> up there and you're doing a good job, you're respected. And, but I had to defy so many odds to get to that place, whether it's financially, whether it's through training, whether it's socially. And I think, um, I mean, I can't speak on their behalf why they chose that title, but, um, or those, you know, recognitions. But I think ultimately just, you know, at the same time coming from an activist background in Bangladesh, for example, there was a lot of different, Things that were offered to me and I was being made to, you know, everyone, whether it was politically, whether it was through the corporates, they were trying to market it like they they were trying to glorify me so that I could. And I, I completely did it independently. I had no support from the government, no support from any, you know, like all these corporates who claimed to me. So I had to defy all these odds on the ground mm. while this was happening. And because I'm a single woman in my culture, while I was doing this, I automatically pissed off a group in my society who wanted a man to be the first person to mm. go on the seven summits wow. and there was all that going on and there was def defamation cases going on like things like that there were sponsored ads on social media against me that I'm this 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 so I had to deal with all that when I'm like supposed to focus on going and climbing this really gnarly mountain you know yeah. so um, those are just some of the very little stories to say like coming from a place like Bangladesh where most people mm. first of all haven't seen many mountain mm -hmm. <laughs> we live we're uh, country of water they didn't understand what mountaineering is but in general i think positive it was a very positive effect for general people who could relate the because uh, this was at a time when you know i'm not a social media person but i did post a lot and it became it gave a lot of inspiration especially to the youth of the country mm. um and i think Internet, like all that stuff that happened, for example, how it went viral, the campaign got very big. People often ask me, did you have a huge media group or what happened? Like, I was like, no, dude. Like I was literally on bank loans, on personal loans uh, that took me four years to pay that 
debt. I sold my mother's gold jewelry that she got on wedding, uh, on her wedding, which is in our tradition passed on from. Like I did all these. I, I was sleeping in people's couches, and then when I came back from Everest, all these people who were never there just came back to my life, and you know. So all that to say that it's it was a lot that I had to take just mm-hmm. to finish this right and. I think one of the things that I'm super excited about, and this even came up in a previous episode mm. where I interviewed uh, um, the vice president for innovation and strategy at Chaminade University mm. here in Honolulu, is that in so many different fields, and yeah. what I'm hearing for you also in the outdoor field, the more multicultural, the more diverse yeah. it gets, the more the perspectives begin to become 360. Mm-hmm. So what she talked about was science, that science now with so many re- researchers who are indigenous, who are women, mm-hmm. who are coming from all these different backgrounds are changing the way science is, yeah. the way it exists. And what you're describing is that the outdoor world is also changing because of these challenges that are coming. And I think I, from the beginning, I reminded people, why do we, because exploration is from that, you know, other perspective is very like, let's go and conquer this mountain, you know, and we don't go to the mountains with that energy. We are, it's a very humbling process of surrendering because if you had really conquered a mountain, you could live on the top and like right before the summit bid, you see all these like, you know, really tough macho people, like literally praying and waiting for like one short window for them to go. So that's not a very, (laughs) you know what I mean? So there's, yeah. yeah, So I think that that whole perspective shift of what does exploration look in a more, from a more feminine perspective. And I'm not saying that only females can do it. There's, it needs to be balanced, you know? Uh, uh, And that's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. So we're going to move on to Uh question number seven. Um, which is connected. Um, so I want to talk about the education of women, a subject uh, near and dear to me, given that I taught for eight years at an all-girls mm-hmm. school. But I don't want to have an academic discussion or talk about any achievement right. gaps or anything like that. Instead, I, I want to talk about incantations that you spoke in the short film towards the end um, that I was watching. So you 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 talked about speaking without words and drawing without chalk and finding each other even in silence. So in what ways can we use your words as a jumping off point in a discussion about the education of women? And, and what's your your dream education journey for women for everyone? And I know that's a big yeah. question, but those words caught me and moved me and, and I'm thinking about them as we think about education. To me, I think it ties back to something we addressed earlier is I think, um, and also with the whole balance of masculine and feminine energy, when we talk about, for example, patriarchy, we tend to forget that patriarchy is a system where women are as much part of as men are in the fight for equal rights, right? right. So for so many centuries the earth has been on this journey where there's been an imbalance and it's not just in the education or you know like mass media it's everywhere right and it's right now we have to given what's happening to our earth climate change and every you know the emergency that harnessing that energy within ourselves internally the balance of masculine and feminine energy, regardless of what your genders are. Uh, regards, I think that um, is very key because I've dealt with women who are highly educated, who are doing exactly what 
you know. It's always been done. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that, that's not a very kind of com- coming from a place of balance. And so I've been rejected on this TV show that is all about women by female executives in the past, you know. Mm-hmm. So and the, my executive director is a man who is balanced from with all, you know, this feminine, you know, if that, if that makes sense. So yeah. what I'm saying is like, I think it's really important to harness that energy and also be in touch with Mother Earth and that energy that all of us can receive and then really educate ourselves on how to gain that power back. Mm. And that's what you're thinking about in terms of education uh, yeah, as and a whole. Education as a whole, and um, that's what I'm focusing on in my foundation with the girls. And, you know, recently we started taking male students, youth who are, you know, really suffering from addiction and things like that. It's across the board and not just with education in workplace, um, mm-hmm. in, with innovation, what really serves us. And, you know, when we talk about competition, we tend to think of it as a negative thing. We do. But there is healthy competition, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there should be healthy competitions because mm-hmm. otherwise you can't, you know, check yourself as long as we're not losing ourselves in that competition. If, right. Yeah. Um, as long as it's in the service of something right. that's for a greater good. Right. If you're competing, for example, with a series of teams exactly. to develop some kind of technology that right. gets us off of fossil fuels by right. all means, yeah. let's compete with each other on that. So um, hel- as long as mindfulness yeah. and kindness and compassion are, are part of the equation, right. then we'll be okay. So that's a, that's actually a perfect, I, I would love, question number eight is about your foundation. So let's mm. go, let's go to that. You're the founder of the, is it Ocel? Ocel, yeah. Ocel Foundation. You are an expedition expert for National Geographic as well. So you take leaders on journeys uh, into nature. So my question is, what leaders and why are you taking them into nature? And what happens to these leaders when you immerse them in nature? Mm. So this year I've kind of paused from leading because I'm like full time on production. But in the past till last December, um, my, cause I have learned so much from these journeys. And whenever I look back, I'm like, how do I share this? How do I share these lessons? Whether it's through my foundation and, um, I've led youth groups, girls groups, adult corporate leaders from like the tech companies, from, um, you know, people who are always stuck inside boxes on the phone, um, which is also an issue with how we raise our children these days is like, yeah, we're living in the modern internet age, but there's a lot in the internet age that I don't know if I want my child, future children to be, indeed, you know, mm-hmm. get distracted with. And also in the internet they're the role models that are mass marketed aren't necessarily the healthiest ones. And so there's a whole vacuum that I see in the youth, especially even with my younger cousins when I go back to Bangladesh, it's like their their role models are completely superficial and so they're 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 constantly judging themselves with these high expectations. And so my purpose was to take them back to nature to find themselves find their it's because the journey as cliched as it sounds is perhaps not about learning anything but to unlearn first so that we can actually become and realize our full potential and also actually means the luminosity or the clarity of our mind which is in all of us Mm -hmm. regardless of gender background um and it is the 
Buddha nature or like the awakened mind, right? Mm -hmm. So all these journeys kind of lead up to realizing that. And there is, like I was saying earlier, with the corporate especially, I have gotten so much feedback of how these short journeys are retreats into nature. And they weren't like extreme nature workshops. They were just like within California or several other parts in the U.S., just back into the forest. And we do so many different activities in there. Um, like, I don't know if you've heard of forest bathing and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it has a direct uh, correlation with how they perform when they come back to workspace. Right. They're, they're, you know, and how they're dealing with the competition, the unhealthy competition and their skill sets and their learning curves and all that. So um, mm -hmm. and nothing brings me joy, more joy than like seeing that shift in thinking when they come back. And I think, um, you know, I have found my own healing and learning by going back to nature. And so I just feel like it's it was a responsibility to just and I also learned so much through mm -hmm. that whole journey, right? So nature seems to be particularly effective at helping people unlearn right. things. Nature in some ways is unforgiving mm. of things that you've learned that are not healthy. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And it's a, it's like, it has so many mirrors that it, you know, puts up to you. Mm. And it's a, that's why these journeys are very spiritual for me. And wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. Mirrors that are put up to you. Yeah. My, again, referencing my daughter, Emma, yeah. who lives in California, um, that her, her pre-teaching work that she did before she started into grad school and her first teaching job as a kindergarten uh, teacher, that she was doing something called Forest Friends. Right. So this was taking little kids who were pretty much kindergarten age. Yeah. Um, and this wasn't just the uh, after school thing. This was school for them. Right. So every day out in the forest, trying to figure out the ways that the forest could teach them right. this or that or the other. Um, mm -hmm. So it was very special mm. watching her go through that process. Mm. Um, okay, so question number nine. Um, so in the next couple of days, you will keynote an evening event here in Hawaii titled Elevating Women um, that includes a panel of Hawaii's women leaders, including our Department of Education Superintendent, Christina Kishimoto, who has gone on record several times in Hawaii, um, telling Hawaii's education community to, quote, be bold and be brave. Mm. And this is in the context of empowerment, like take a hold of your school community and get everyone together and start to design school in the way that you think is best in your particular location. Mm. Um, so given this episode won't air until after that <laughs> event, <laughs> what will be your message to the assembled at Vivai Collective where this event is taking place? What specifically is your message to the head of our public schools and to the people who are assembled there? Similar to everything that I've been sharing is like, you know, you have, and I completely agree with being bold and being brave is like we have to step out of the box and rethink what our education system, not just in Hawaii, all over the world is like there is I am a true believer of experiential learning and we have to allow our students and our children to, you know, grow from that. And so speaking of my college, like I went back uh, 10 years later and I was given the, you know, uh, young um alumni award from my alma mater, Agnes Scott's college, and they made it from that year mandatory for first year students to 
like they pay for the college pays for students to go abroad, learn from experiences, and all the courses wow. are credit based. But you have to go to a foreign country because mm. a lot of these American students haven't even left their state, you know. Mm. And so the college pays for or has partnership with cer- certain institutions abroad where they go immerse themselves in that culture and learn from it. And it's all credit based. So there's so many ways we can shape it if we we are open to this kind of innovation. Wow! Imagine the ways that that reshapes the college that college's yeah. environment. Yeah. Because then for the next three years. You've had all these experiences, and then you come back, yeah, come back, right? from that space. And I have spoke to several of the first year students after they've come back, and it's like they're completely a different person at that point, you know. And they're revalue, like their entire world is like on a on a different note. And I know that because I was also when I first ended up in the Himalayas, I went on a grant from my college to study how women were using art as therapy because I was double majoring in studio art and psychology at that time. And that's how I ended up in the Himalayas with the Tibetan refugees. That's a whole other story. But I'm saying that I learned so much from that whole experience. And those were all credit-based courses. So mm-hmm. um, institutions have to be open to innovations like that where, you know, you can program things. And this is happening all across. Right now, I'm trying to figure out how I can get some of these students from Bangladesh in my foundation to have these mentoring opportunities with high school students in the U.S. and perhaps could be an inter-exchange between students in the U.S. and they could be big sisters to the girls there because they have so much to learn mm-hmm. just by immersing themselves in the situation of these Bangladeshi students and also in Nepal. But it's it's mm-hmm. small efforts. Uh, right. So it sounds like the larger message here is about worldliness, about right. having experiences that change the way that you do your normal schooling. Yeah, because we are living at a time where we're so global and, you know, interdependent. So we we have to think outside of, for example, for Hawaiians, we have to think outside the islands, right? And mm-hmm. also, and I don't know about the population here, but um, a lot of, from my country at least, Bangladeshis go out because, and they never come back, you know, mm-hmm. because they think that, that's it. Or even in Nepal, I see that like, and it is, I'm not saying it's a responsibility, but it's also very refreshing when you, whatever you learn outside in the, in the world to bring that back Mm -hmm. and somehow pass on that, whether it's by through your own institution or own efforts, but to pass on that learning to your community Mm -hmm. And that's how the ripple effect can mm. continue if that... Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it has been a difficult yeah. conversation on Hawaii for, oh, really? for decades. No, yeah. just because because we often feel like the only place you can go is to the mainland for college. And uh, so the, the sensitivity is that you're not going to come back. And so right. very difficult for parents like, you know, I want the best for my child. So she's going to go to UCLA, right. but I'm mm. pretty sure she's not going to come back. Right. And I think now in Hawaii, we're starting to have a different conversation, which is mm. more like what you're describing, that I want my child to have some kind of experience out in the world. Mm. But we have an opportunity if we do it right here in Hawaii mm. for them to come back and work on big important issues of the world, but you can be here in Hawaii while Mm. you're doing it. If climate change or Mm. human trafficking or any of these really, really Mm. big, you know, energy, Mm. all these issues, why can't you live in Hawaii and work on that globally? Mm. And you're probably more capable of working on it globally if you've had global experiences like what you're describing. Mm -hmm. 
right? Yeah. And it's not always necessary to come back. He, that this person could also be in mainland and work for Hawaiians, you know. Right. But it's just having that global perspective and knowing that, hey, whatever I'm learning, they're mm -hmm. also just giving it back. I can give back to my country even from L.A., right? right. And But just the interconnectedness of everything, mm -hmm. uh, that's what I'm stressing on is like um, – and it's I completely understand from the parents' perspective of not wanting to, because they're, they're I don't know about the resources here, but in Bangladesh, like for a lot of us who wants to go back, it's not the ideal societal situation where we can thrive. For example, right, similar to Hawaii, where it's expensive, right, and difficult to make a living here. So mm. yeah, so what so what I'm picking up in terms of your message to those people assembled at Vivi Collective for this mm. event is is. It, we're interconnected, yes, and it behooves us to all think about having a global perspective. Exactly, and you can't just do that by looking at a at a computer screen. Right, you have to get out there, yeah, and be part of it. Right, yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> cool. Okay, so wow, we're at question number ten. Um, I feel like we could do a whole nother yeah. thing after this. So, um, Asfia, I adventured through your website for a long, long time over oh, no. several days, um, and there's much to talk about. But I would regret it for the rest of my life if, it, if I did not ask you about your relationship to His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, um, who has been here and has oh, really? developed relationships with people here. Oh, it's in Hawaii, very, yeah. Very, very yeah. special. So would you share the story of how you came to know him? And what is your greatest joy about this relationship? And I, I know, sorry, multi-part question here, but what has he given you that you carry with you along your journey in your metaphorical suitcase, either thoughts or tools or words of wisdom or ways of being? That's a really long story, but I will try to shorten it. So uh, as I mentioned before, growing up, I didn't have any mentor. You know, my father was gone. My mother was gone. I didn't have any role model. My you know, older brother was missing. I was on literally survival mode, right? And then fast forward into college, like I got a grant to go to India to study in, I think about 14 different locations all over India on how women were using art as therapy. And the last spot in that was Dharamsala, which is in northern part of India, which is the exiled capital of the Tibetan people just across the border from Tibet. And it's a very politically sensitive place right around Kashmir also, which is another place. So like literally a lot of the people in the town are actually spies, you know? And so I ended up there without knowing anything, right? And then I was working with a group of Tibetan former nuns who were in prison uh, under the Chinese occupation and who had gone through extreme physical and mental torture, like, and this is like at the age of barely 21, early 20s and when I was personally going through a really rough time in my life and no hope and I was bawling my eyes out the whole time I spent with them I was like literally slap on my face like hey wake up you thought you had it wrong or not easy these people don't have a motherland they lost their you know entire civilization taken over 1.8 million of out of their 6 million and they're they're uh practice was compassion towards your enemy and that was a concept that i i was never exposed to 
And it really awakened me. And so long story short, I came back to college. I had in Atlanta, Georgia at that time, had a yard sale, just enough money to go pay for a ticket to go back to Dharamsala. And, you know, I told my professors and deans who knew me and supported me through the, I had an amazing, you know, professors who I still am best friends with. And they said, go, because I know, and I miss my graduation, everything. And I just, and I had a job after graduation that was already fixed in San Francisco. I left all that. And I just took that leap of faith to just go into Dharamsala because I knew that there were lessons that, and there was this connection. And so when I moved to Dharamsala within the next two weeks, I got jobs in several different nonprofits Everything was sorted. Everything was just waiting for me. And within, I think, two months, I got invited to meet His Holiness, which is an anomaly because, you know, he is a very busy man. And I think he had seen me and I stood out and he heard of my work from his brother. And when I first met him, the first I've met him so many times and I still, you know, every year we go back. But he made me. And he doesn't remember it every every time because he says so many things to so many people. He told me, I wouldn't do justice to the way that he said it, but the summary was that there are two times in a human's life when we're the most vulnerable. One is right after we're born and right before we're about to die. And were my parents there for me when I was born? So this was a, you know, this is a conversation that happened over many months. And he made me reflect on memories on my parents and asked, he said, you know, that's a debt that you can never repay. And so it ended up being a deep, you know, forgiveness process towards my parents. And I had all these memories and recollections of gratitude that come up. And he was like, just sit with it. And when I had hard time even imagining memories from my mom, he took me back into the womb. It's like this woman carried you for nine months, and then at the end of it, he pressed in my on my third eye, and all he said that your time will come. <laughs> you know, he had this thunderous voice. So at that time, I was so young, and I I thought, oh, I'm also gonna get old at some point, and I'm gonna be dependent on people, and da da da, and it's a cycle. That's what I thought. Yeah. Then fast forward to 2015. I mean, about. 10, 15, 12 years later, when my father had a heart attack and broke his lumbar spine disc, I ended up taking care of him in the hospital for three months, which was a long, enduring you know, thing for me. But I found my forgiveness through that and my closure with him throughout that three months. And I actually brought him out on the first day, which was on the 27th day that he was going to walk for the first time. And I was, as I was walking with him in the lobby, I just had a thunderous laughter in my head saying, your time will come. And that's what he meant. And I went back to Jose Hill and he's saying, remember when you said this? And he was like just laughing, saying like, no, <laughs> I have that recollection. But yeah, so to summarize, if he wasn't there at that time, I my life would be very different. He literally rebirthed me and my whole perspective on finding home, finding grounding, being with not just him, but Tibetan refugees and how he's led this nonviolent movement for 60 years against one of the most powerful forces in the world and the practice. And I'm no way, of course, near him. There's so such a long way to go. But just like 
And he also sometimes would ask me to imagine myself as a kid who was born into, say, a war zone or, you know, because we get so caught up, like I said before, in our own struggles that we tend to lose that mm. to the sight of the fact that so many others are going through extreme, you know, um, and, you know, when you think of holiness, many people just forget that he is also a refugee Right. <laughs> still, you know. Right. Uh, but Tibetans are, I think, because I've worked with many refugee uh, communities around the world. The Rohingya refugees are in Bangladesh right now. But I think just their, the way he's led everyone with the mental mm-hmm. stability, it's it's something that defines them as the most successful refugees probably ever have lived on earth. Seriously, like for 60 years um, and no hatred towards your enemy. And we can, you know, conceptually talk about it, but to practice it is on a whole nother level. I think one of the things that I picked up as I was going through that particular part of your site were all the photos that were posted at the bottom. And there is a number of things that I picked up out of that. One is the great joy in his face that seems to be there almost in every single photo, despite all the things that have happened in his life. And the other is that, yes, he's super busy. He probably meets thousands of people. And yet in each of those photos, including the ones that are with you, all of them with you, he seems fully present. Yeah. And that's what really struck me about those photos. And that's with a beggar. That's with any, like, uh, a business person. Like, he treats... And one of the first things he does when you enter the room is he's always... He does things in his own ways that will make you feel comfortable Mm. to relate with him because Mm. he knows he's aware of that. And, you know, when you shadow him for so long, you see these... Because he's also, you know... There's the Dalai Lama, the title, but behind the scene, he's also someone who was put into throne at the age of 13, you know, like gone through his own, he's in a human body. So, but as a human and human connection, he's never like the love that he, compassion he's showed me, that's with everyone across the board and even with his enemies, Mm-hmm. You know, he he's and, you know, I often see why is he standing beside so and so and da, 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 because he doesn't look at anyone as an enemy, even his own personal enemies. He friends, befriends them. And, you know, and that, you know, you can talk about it, but to actually practice it and actually pray for them. Mm-hmm. I've gotten mildly scolded for saying uh, negative things about his enemies. Right. You know, he doesn't scold, but, you know, he was like, I was called, you know, put it's like, no, you pray for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're all on this human journey and we all have our own, you know, struggles and we're all in this journey to together. So Wasfia Nazreen, um, National Geographic adventurer and explorer and, and many other things. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Today Such an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Josh. 